Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I am Joe Devine and today I was joined by James Montague, Alex Stewart and Seb Stafford-Bloor. Now I spoke to James first um, all about Mike Ashley. Mike Ashley's backstory, uh, Mike Ashley now leaving Newcastle potentially if the Premier League okay this uh, bid that's been made for the club by PIF, the uh, Saudi Arabia Royal Fund, and some of the implications of that. I then spoke to Alex and Seb a little bit about moving forwards with Newcastle now. What's likely to happen over the next uh, few months and years? Are we likely to see the same sort of pattern that occurred with Manchester City and uh, the Abu Dhabi royal family? And if not, why not? Um, and also from Alex specifically, if you were taking over Newcastle right now, looking at the team, looking at the manager, what would you do? What would you change? Where are the problems? Uh, who can be kept? And um, who has to go? I would like to encourage everyone listening to uh, go and get their 90-day free trial of The Athletic. The Athletic is the best place to read about football online. It's ad-free, incredibly high-quality journalism is simply a must-read. And actually, particularly their Newcastle coverage at the moment is uh, is of real interest. And we read a lot of that stuff to prepare for today's episode. And we're making some complimentary videos to uh, to sit around that too for the TIFO Football channel. You can get your 90-day free trial by visiting theathletic.co.uk forward slash TIFO90. That's the numbers 9-0. TIFO90. And hey, it's free. Why the hell not? That's three months. Go and check it out. That's The Athletic. For the purposes of today's episode, we begin with James Montague and 20 minutes on the backstory of Mike Ashley. Here we go. Okay, James, it looks very likely that uh, well, at the, the, the time of speaking that um, a new bid has come in for Newcastle United. Mike Ashley might be able to finally sell, which I think he's been trying to do for, for the last three years. Um, would you tell us a little bit about Mike Ashley? Because he's a very controversial figure within football. He's you know disliked, I would say, vehemently by the majority of, of Newcastle fans. Um, why is that for a man who just used to be a, a budding squash player? <laughs> well, yeah, Mike Ashley it really does provoke um, a large amount of hatred in people. Interestingly, when you read profiles and interviews with people who are much closer to him, he's he comes across as a very gregarious, kind of fun kind of guy. I mean, I mean, this is a guy who you know drunk eleven pints on a business meeting and then vomited into an <laughs> open fire in a pub. So you know, I mean, if you're willing to you know let yourself go in that way in front of your staff, I mean, there's a certain uh, I, I wouldn't say attraction to working for somebody like that. But I mean, you know, I mean, it would never be a dull day. But yeah, I mean, he took over from Newcastle. Um, you know, paid close to 150 million pounds back in 2007. Um, of course. He was he's a he's a billionaire. He's made his money in Sports Direct and various other retail ventures. I mean, a self-made man, um, a self-made billionaire, which is kind of rare in Britain these days. In fact, and in somebody- your in your script that you wrote originally for us, it went out about a year ago. A profile on Mike Ashley. I'd forgotten this until I rewatched it this morning. But the ten thousand pounds that his father gave him di- didn't come from some family allowance. It came from him remortgaging the family bungalow. Right. So this is a real self-made man. Yeah, this is kind of lower middle class guy. Went to school, got one O level. Um, you know, you wouldn't think of it by looking at him, but then the same with kind of if you looked at someone like say I don't know Prozinetsky, for instance, they don't look like they ever played professional football, but that's what kind of eighty fags a day does to you. But um, yeah, Ashley wanted to be a professional squash player, uh, couldn't make it, became a kind of certified coach, and set up a, a, a string of. Um, kind of retail sports retail shops in the home counties and then parlayed that eventually into this kind of stack them high sell them cheap sports direct type of uh retail empire which partly makes its profit a large part of its profit from also buying distressed brands and trying to you know bring them into kind of a, a unified production chain and at the, also at the same time by cutting worker wages and conditions down to the absolute bone. One of the most controversial issues about Ashley has been his allegations of continuous poor treatment of workers uh, within the Sports Direct empire. Um, There was, I mean, some of the listeners might remember from a few years ago, there was a big uh, Guardian investigation into one of the big warehouses where 
workers were be- it was a appalling regime people weren't even being paid the minimum wage in some places uh, there was the example of a woman who had given birth in the toilets uh, because she was so, so scared to take any time off because you were punished for that uh, the bbc did an investigation into a kind of six strikes policy if you did six strikes um like infractions which ranged from going to the toilets any you know just silly things using your mobile phone talking um, but the talking but the biggest thing was he was he was uh, back then the biggest employer biggest user of zero hours contracts and now anyone that's looked at britain in the 21st century can see that zero hours contracts especially amongst uh, younger people um has have had a pretty devastating effect on uh, the outlook economic outlook for young people but also on the country um it, just to give your listeners a bit of background zero hours contracts i mean many of you probably worked on zero hours contracts and these are contracts that do not they're not a work contract you, they do not have to offer you any hours whatsoever so it's it's not really a proper job and it's these contracts that have been blamed especially by you know the labor party and uh, unions in particular in impoverishing millions of people, especially since um, you know 2010, after the financial crisis and the kind of dawn of austerity, and Mike Ashley has uh, you know exploited that system to the point where he was actually you know he's been brought up in uh, par- uh, Prime Minister's Questions Time. He has been dragged in front of a, a select committee, a parliamentary select committee. Uh, he's had to apologise. He's had to pay money. He's promised to get rid of. Uh, or at least uh, give guaranteed hours to his workers. But that hasn't happened a year later, two years later. He's been criticised by Unite. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn, the, the former leader of the Labour Party in the opposition, um, brought this up again, only uh, only relatively recently. And then you go to today and, you know, it's not like he's something that he's really learnt from. What happens when we have COVID-19 and, you know, he has to apologise because he wants to keep his stores open, saying that they're an essential service, even though his terrified staff aren't being given any protective equipment. And, of course, he's the first football club to take advantage of the government's furlough scheme, whereby the government will pay 80% of the wages up to a certain level, whereas... Tottenham and Liverpool have had to row back on that because of the huge public outcry, but not Ashley. He's not a man, really, who cares that much about what people say. I mean, it's what's best for his business. So this is the kind of man, you know, self-made, ruthless in many ways, but, you know, a real product of 21st century Western capitalism in that respect. Yeah, I mean, you paint paint a picture of a ruthless capitalist in his business life. There there have been many people who who are quoted as saying that actually, you know, one of the areas in which he's gone wrong or one of the ways in which he's gone wrong is is thinking that he can treat a football club just like any of his other businesses. And clearly that hasn't worked if we look at the evidence at Newcastle United over over the past 13 years. But that's what he's like in his business life. What's he like running a football club and and why do uh, Newcastle supporters particularly hate him? Well, I mean, you say that, but actually, if you look at it, you know, and this is something that comes out a lot with the way that American owners have come into uh, British English soccer in particular, but European in the European game as well, that they bring a sensibility of rationalising the business because football is a a crazy industry. We think it's massive, but it's not. It's a tiny industry, really. If you think about the um, revenue of a football club uh, and if it makes a profit, which is something that is really only something that was relatively recent um, from for many clubs because of the booming TV deals, you know, the margins are tiny. You know, 80, 90 percent, maybe more of the turnover of a club goes out in wages to players. So it's a completely topsy-turvy business, which is ripe for being kind of rationalised. And a lot of American owners have come in and Stan Kroenke is one example that I looked at closely when I was writing my previous book, uh, The Billionaires Club. This is a guy who... Um, had, you know, been part of the franchise system of many different American sports, especially American football, and had built and helped be part of a system that made sure that owners extracted the absolute maximum amount of value from it. And so these guys are coming into the game and they're now looking at football clubs, not as to win glory, not that coming top will uh, necessarily get you the most money, but just doing the absolute minimum you have to to survive in the Premier League uh, so that you keep that those sweet kind of uh, uh, you know TV money uh, pounds kind of rolling in, and um, or get, you know if you have slightly bigger clubs go, getting into the Champions League to keep that kind of uh, flow. So it's about 
trying to minimise wages, minimise transfer fees, but uh, maximise commercial revenue. Uh, but, you know, really trying to keep the lid on, on the outgoings. And in that kind of business environment, actually, Ashley is exactly the kind of person who, who kind of typifies that, but a very British version of it. And so if you look at Newcastle's finances, I mean, actually, you know, they've they've actually done pretty well. I mean, they've stabilised, made profits, um, you know, but that's not why you go into owning a football club necessarily. I mean, you go into a football club because you want your team to win or the fans want you to win a cup or have a great season in the league. Um, Could you also make an argument that they've been l- lucky as well? I mean, they were lucky to have Rafa Benitez, for example, who helped them escape the drop. That would have had a, a, a huge negative impact on, on on their finances. Or, I mean, or yes. is it really just a case of you know, depending on your perception of what the purpose of football is? Well, they did look. I mean, they did. It, it all depends on how your club is set up when you get relegated. And Newcastle were relegated and and obviously returned. And it was you know, Newcastle survived that, but. Someone like Ashley is, in, in fact, very, very much the kind of person that is running football clubs, in, especially in the top leagues in England now and around the world. But he's just a very brash, very recognisably English kind of version of it. Um, but then if you think about the mistakes that he's made, um, I mean, I mean, we can go into you know, sacking Sam Allardyce. I mean, many people probably don't see that as a mistake, but at the time he had a pretty high... Um, reputation you know this is a guy who had you know he's a bit of a miracle worker ahead of his time almost you know um, getting rid of him uh, get, changing the name of St James's Park to the Sports Direct Arena it just looked it looked small time you know and, and, it, and it made a lot of people wonder like okay why have you bought this club I mean of course it's the biggest advertising hoarding in the world a Premier League football club and so you know he wanted to benefit from that Could you say to a certain extent that actually given how much Mike Ashley's name has been in in the local or the national parlance for the last 13 years and given how often Sports Direct is uh is mentioned publicly you know that there's the old adage that no news is bad news do you think it's kind of worked for him in a way? Well I I was thinking about this um, today, actually, and yesterday in relation more to do with sports washing about how golf countries buy football clubs, uh, invest in football clubs and in in sport in general to try to massage their reputation, divert attention away from often the very bad things or the very bad reputation that they might have. And there's quite good argument that people will say, oh, yeah, well, look, I mean, look, everybody's talking about Kafala, like in terms of Qatar or, you know, I mean, look at Manchester City's reputation. Their owners is terrible. Um, so it doesn't work. So it's obviously not sports washing. Whereas I would actually say that in perhaps in our media bubble or kind of social media bubble, perhaps their reputation isn't great because of, you know, it's come out a lot of the stuff they've been doing. But actually in the wider public, um, it's a very different perception. And actually, in the wider public, Manchester City's perception, I, I, I mean, until the UEFA charges were brought about um, allegedly uh, cooking the books a little bit to make sure that uh, they they kind of hit their f- uh, financial fair play targets, um, it, it kind of still worked. Qatar's a bit of a different kettle of fish because um, the World Cup is, is such a big thing that it really, I think it has damaged Qatar's reputation. But I think that the perception of in our media bubble of what, what would affect somebody's reputation and what's out there in the real public. And we see this with elections as well. You know, what's what's going on, the discussions going on on social media aren't the discussions that are being taken place in the country in many in respects. And Sports Direct, you know, people are still going there. People are still, it was still thriving until um, things outside of its control changed its business. For instance, it, it halved its profits last year because, um, because of Brexit, because, uh, because the, you know, the because sterling has depreciated by twenty percent, and that's that's a huge. If you're a clothing clothing retailer, that's a huge extra cro- a cost to be burdened with, and then you're going to have, of course, COVID after that. So it hasn't affected his core business, and so you wonder what kind of reputational damage really um, happens outside of Newcastle. I mean, this is a guy who not only did he change the name to Sports Direct, but the way to get out of it wasn't to just say, okay, we're going to go back to St. James's Park. It was by selling the naming rights to Wonga, yeah. who, it was Wonga that changed the name back as part of the deal. They actually bought the naming rights and changed it back. And this is, I mean, Wonga is now synonymous with the payday loan culture and, you know, interest, five, five, point, five figure interest on, uh, on small loans. And, you know, Expl- like just some of the worst exploitation of the poor in Britain 
and they kind of came out of it better than Ashley, which is mm. incredible. Yeah. So, I mean, he looks very likely that he's selling now. Um, is he going to make any money from this? And what, what, what does his exit look like to you, James? We might see less of him, but I doubt it. I mean, there's going to be lots of other areas where he will be uh, a, a kind of sheriff, a sheriff of Nottingham type character. Uh, man dragged dragged across the coals in the press. There's no doubt about it. I mean, he's gonna if he gets 350 million, um, he will. I mean, obviously there's there's uh, loans and all sorts of other things as well. But you know, I think he might make a small profit out of it. But I think it's more the fact that he has. It's been very clear uh, almost from the second year onwards that he wanted out. That he made a mistake. Um, he got. He's gone. He's got in above his head. He's above his head. Uh, the business of of running a football club, uh, on top of all his other businesses. I mean, I remember. I was in. I was went to the. I visited Dubai. I think shortly after my first book came out about football in the Middle East, and I was doing a feature for four four two about uh, Abu Dhabi and Manchester City, and you know, because no one knew anything about it. They'd just been purchased, and when I was there. Ashley was there as well, trying to hawk the club <laughs> to somebody to to a shake in Dubai. And I, I remember, I can't remember if it was a picture in the local press or if it was like in the sun or something, but it, he turned up and he was in one of these kind of hotel bars, which if anyone goes to Dubai, you know, very much, you know, every, that's where you go. Cause there's no pubs there are, but they're in, they're in hotels. And it was like an outside hotel bar next to a pool table at night, drinking a pint of lager that probably cost 15 quid, you know, waiting for a shake to arrive that never turned up. And you just thought, I mean, if you're willing to put yourself in such a public place to get rid of a club, <laughs> this isn't something you, you're you really going to love and want to nurture yeah. uh, in the future. So, you know, I think it, he'll get the money and he'll be he'll thank the Lord that the Saudis have come in and taken it off him. Because there's in this market, um, I don't know who else would be uh, there with the money that would be possible, would, would want to take on a project like this. Just a quick reminder that you can get a 90-day free trial to read the work of our colleagues over at The Athletic, the best place to read about football online. A recent piece, which is relevant to our discussions today, is called Along Came Mike Ashley, and it was written by George Colkin, Chris Waugh, Matt Slater, Oliver Kay, and David Ornstein. It's actually very long, but uh, I read it a few nights ago, and I think it's fantastic. It really gives you a good insight into the backstory of Mike Ashley and a little bit of more insight into the man himself. So Tifo made a video about Mike Ashley um, just over a year ago. James wrote the script for that, and we've covered some of that ground again in today's podcast. But what really interests me from the Along Came Mike Ashley piece is that you do, you get a little bit more of a sense of, of who this man is. And the piece is very balanced in its approach. It details all of the things that we all know about Mike Ashley and the reasons why he is essentially despised by the vast majority of uh, Newcastle supporters and football supporters generally. But at the same time, there's more insight into why some of those decisions would have been made. More insight into the man himself, the way that he comes across to colleagues, peers, rivals, staff members and fans. Many of whom The Athletic spoke to in order to write this long piece. So please do go and get your 90-day free trial. You can read that, all of their other Newcastle coverage at this important time, and indeed all of the local and international national coverage across the rest of the site and across nine other sports other than football too. So if you visit theathletic.co.uk forward slash TIFO90, TIFO90, you can claim that 90-day free trial and enjoy the rest of your week. Anyway, back to the episode now. Thanks for listening. Okay, Seb, if I can start with you, um, and I want to ask you this with the caveat that we will talk about uh, the new potential owners if and when uh, that deal does occur. Of course, it it still has to go through uh, the owners and directors test or what used to be called the fit and proper persons test has to go through the Premier League who've been put in this quite difficult position where when they say yes or no, there'll be a lot of uh, criticism and sort of political ramifications with both of those sides. So we anticipate that it will be a yes, that this will be official at some point, and Mike Ashley will officially sell the club to uh, the royal family of Saudi Arabia, or the PIF fund, effectively. Um, So, Seb, my question, I suppose, is what are we to expect here? Is this as big as it was when uh, the royal family of Abu Dhabi bought, New- uh, bought Manchester City all those years ago. Is, is this the same situation? 
No, not really, Joe, because um, the world has changed. The football world has changed. Um, so we now have concepts like financial fair play, which irrespective of what people think of them or the, the rights and wrongs, um, they are a restricting force on takeovers. So the the idea of a, I think the, the example I probably use is the Abramovich takeover back in 2004. You couldn't have a situation like that, not least in this instance, because um, one of the anomalies of Mike Ashley's time at Newcastle is that commercial revenue has not only not grown, it, it's actually retracted by about a million pounds a year. Um, so revenue is an issue for Newcastle. So I think I think I think instead of the um the big traditional splurge, I think what we'll have um at first at least is is a sort of um a detoxifying process, a a de ashleying uh few months where the the physical um the physical memories of what Newcastle have been for the last decade and a half removed. So that includes things like um obviously stripping out all of those terrible sports direct hoardings from St James's Park. Um Hopefully, uh, as, as as far as I'm aware, the um, the current shirt sponsor, which is with uh, Fun eighty eight, uh, their three years as the the club's headline sponsor ends this summer, so they will be a new, probably uh, less offensive uh, kit sponsor. Um, and I think you'll see a, a lot of things of that nature. Probably some work in the community, um, some sort of uh, heavy handed PR because um, there's a blueprint for this now. I think so. I think so. I mean, Newcastle are in a slightly different position. They're not. They're not Paris Saint Germain in the sense that they don't have that kind of that geographical primacy in England. Um, what they can benefit off is a loyal fan base, um, being by far the most successful club in their region currently. Um, Sunderland remain for the moment in League One, um, so their catchment area is very large. Um, but they also have that sort of that. No, that 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 nest of intangibles that exists in the northeast, and I, I think um, I think in this initial period, the aim will have to be to kind of to play to the audience, um, to present this as a credible football project, and that doesn't just mean marching in an army of very expensive players on um, poorly thought out contracts, but actually establishing um, the I, I suppose establishing some some transparency you know what what is the structure actually going to look like if i'm a newcastle fan i want to know before any any players arrive i want to know firstly who's making decisions about the team in terms of its structure who is a sporting director going to be and also because the um because the takeover is funded from different sources and involves a lot of people who don't necessarily have a very public profile i think i probably want to know who's responsible for what within this new regime who is uh who looks after the commercial interests of the club who is going to be the chief executive who do i blame when things aren't as they should be because as we know from the past um when new people come into a football club there can be a sort of a six to 18 month period of of madness where everyone gets a little bit overexcited with the new toy and inefficiencies result so yeah transparency marketing de-ashleying these are the commodities at the moment for newcastle i think I think if, I mean, if we do take uh, some sort of comparison to the situation at Manchester City, which I think is fair because it seems clear to to everyone that this is um, a sort of opportunist uh, act of what is has become known as sports washing uh, by a Gulf state with a history of, uh, of, of very poor uh, human rights abuses. Um, that's clearly what it is, right? So if we can take some comparison there, the structure and the clarity are things which you don't have at Manchester City. You know, you know, okay, you know that Khaldun Mubarak is is the chairman, for example, but it really isn't clear. You know, even even to take it back a, a stage, it really isn't clear who the actual owner is. And so, in this case with Newcastle, the bid has been made. I think ten percent of it uh, comes from Amanda Staveley, who sort of spearheaded the deal and 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 uh, helped helped forward the negotiations. She was also part of the Manchester City deal with Abu Dhabi, but the bid comes from the. Uh, Saudi Arabian uh, Royal Fund, or it's called the PIF. So the clarity around who actually will own the club, I don't think will ever be there in the same way that it isn't really with Man City. And the other thing I would say in in response to you is, um, I agree about the point about FFP. It's certainly a lot harder to do, and it's impossible to do what what Abramovich did at Chelsea. It's a lot harder to, to make headway nowadays. However, I think if you're working at UEFA, you're probably thinking this is not great because suddenly you're in another situation where whatever the rules say, uh, your opponent uh, in the FFP uh, realm now has infinite amounts of money in the same way that Man City do. And so if those emails that were leaked from... uh, 
football football leaks are to be believed and are and are true, then that attitude of you know we will um, spend millions and millions of dollars and and take UEFA to court for ten years rather than to submit to their will, you, one would assume that that would be the same potential outcome. So I think that sure FFP does restrict them a little bit, but. Do you not think that they'll be certainly seeking ways around that, particularly if uh, if sort of sponsorship slot, slots are open immediately? Yes, of course. I mean, also, uh, this is a post-Manchester City versus UEFA world. Um, when we're recording this, we still don't really know what um, the court of arbitration, a court of arbitration for sports next move is going to be. So we don't actually have a definitive outcome. Um, but UEFA is, I wouldn't say wise to these little tricks, but aware of their existence. Um, I think what's also relevant is the um, the chief executive of Paris Saint Germain is uh, is on uh, a UEFA's executive council, um, and what tends to happen when a new club, um, or what traditionally has happened, when a new club becomes wealthy overnight, um, it breeds resentment uh, and it breeds competition. It also it would mean that you know sort of the the royal family of Qatar, as in um, uh, Paris Saint Germain's case, um, they they tend to. Uh, they tend to shut the doors. Um, and so you've got to account for whatever lobbying is going to happen within UEFA as a result of this, because teams like Paris Saint-Germain, Manchester City, uh, you know, to a lesser extent, Chelsea, these are not sides that are going to go, uh, are going to surrender their financial primacy easily. And in particularly in Manchester City's case, on the basis of, of um, uh, how much duress, rightly or wrongly, they've been placed under with regards to the FFP issue, um, they're going to want to see a similarly strict application to any new side, and that includes Newcastle. Um, just one other thing, Joe, when, when we talk about transparency, I mean, I, I don't want to speak for fans, um, but I have been paying attention to uh, the reaction of the Newcastle public to, to this news and the impending takeover. Now, I think what, we, what matters in terms of transparency to the majority is not who owns the club in what percentages. Um, that's a, an entirely different situation. I think what matters to them at the moment is going to be who makes decisions pertaining to the club. Um, so Manchester City are probably a good example there because everyone knows uh, the flow of footballing power within the organisation. Uh, Chiqui Berigastein um, is obviously a chief executive. Uh, Ferran Soriano, we know his views on the way um, football should run. I'd recommend anyone uh, anyone to, to read his book if, if they haven't already done so. It's kind of a, a, an absolutely terrifying vision of the future. Um, it's like it's, kind of, it's like football's 1984. It's... Um, yeah, it's, it's it's pretty macro um, to to be euphemistic. Um, so I think that's what matters. They want to know, right? That central midfielder that my team needs, who is who is identifying him, who is negotiating a price for him, and who's offering the contract. Um, and that's I, that's the kind of transparency I think we're dealing in. Yeah. Okay. Well, listen. Obviously, uh, as we said before, I'm going to I'm going to keep making this caveat because I want to assure people that we are going to focus on the new owners. The fans will have other things to worry about too, and those are things that that, that we're already seeing people talk about. It's um it's a very confusing and difficult situation for supporters. Um, but these things are going to happen, presumably, right? So, with that in mind, Alex, I would like to ask you what you think of Newcastle, broadly speaking, uh, as a team on the pitch at the moment. I mean, they play quite a distinctive style uh, in the Premier League, which I'm going to call heavily defensive. Is that right? <laughs> and presumably, if that is right, do you think, um, you know, from a sort of PR perspective, that's something they'll be seeking to change? Yes. I, it, it it has to be. I mean, one of one of the things that uh, rich owners seem to want to demand when they come into a club is entertaining and attacking football. Um, this was obviously to go back to Abramovich, who Seb cited earlier. That was one of his promises um, with regards to Chelsea. I think in terms of building a stable revenue base, yes, Newcastle fans are going to turn up Um to St. James's Park, irrespective of the quality of football, because they're that kind of fan base. But the more you can generate uh, attacking and exciting football, the the more stickiness there is to that proposition. Um, and obviously, in terms of uh, the likelihood of achieving European competition, which you know is apparently part of their aim, you know, to turn Newcastle United into a Champions League club. Um, they're not going to achieve that with the kind of football that they're playing. I mean, they 
They are heavily defensive in terms of goals scored. Um, only Norwich, who are bottom, have scored as few goals. And actually Newcastle have managed to do that on slightly less XG as well. So from an attacking perspective, they are clearly the worst team in the Premier League. Um, they're 13th on the basis largely of their defensive performance, although a huge amount of credit needs to go to Martin Dubravka, the goalkeeper, for that because Newcastle's XG against is significantly higher than the number of goals they've conceded. So Dubravka is almost certainly responsible for keeping out shots that really should have gone in. Um, if they had a different goalkeeper, then Newcastle would be very definitely a relegation candidate. Um the football is very stolid, uh, it's very dull, there's quite a lot of long ball. They are quite high up for dribbling numbers and take-ons, but in terms of actually getting the ball successfully into the final third, um, they're in the bottom four or five clubs in the league. Uh, so there's a huge amount of work to be done. Um, How long until we say goodbye to Steve Bruce? Which I, I say, you know, I love Steve Bruce, I think he's great. But, but presumably, I, I, I'm going to challenge you on that, Joe. What, where, where does your love for Steve Bruce come from? From his personality, from his sort of character, from from he, he just seems so sweet and nice, and I want to be around him. Mentally, that I'm sense? trying to connect this to Robbie Brady somehow because I'm no, sure no, that's no. where we're heading. It's, no, it doesn't connect in the same way. But Steve Bruce, I just think he's such a nice man. Basically, I'm, I'm, I don't know him. I might be completely wrong. My impression of him is that he's one of football's nice men. Um, and so I say that with a heavy heart. But presumably, Steve Bruce, you know, he, he, it's already ticking down. Oh, it, it has to be. Um, I mean, Steve Bruce is the kind of person that you bring in to stabilise a club, which I think he has done. Um, he's a defence first and foremost kind of manager. Um I think the issue is that, that Newcastle do have some relatively exciting attacking players in Almiron, uh, Alan Saint-Maxime and Joe Linton, who we've looked at in a video previously. Uh, but Bruce is not really... He doesn't appear to have the, a, a great idea of, of how to use them. Um, if you look at the last five games that Newcastle have played, which does include an FA Cup game, there's been a, a variety of different formations used. So he's tried three at the back, um, with Lazaro, who's a loan signing from Inter Milan, uh, as a, a right wing back, and Matt Rich is a left wing back, which allows San Maxime and Almiron to kind of tuck inside, which I think is probably quite good for them. Um, but he's also used a four four two. He's used a four four one one. So there, there doesn't seem to be um, much of a template beyond keep it solid at the back and try and hope for a moment of individual brilliance from one of these dribblers, ball carriers, uh, to, to get goals. Um, it is easier to work on defence, but, you know, that's that's not necessarily a criticism of Bruce. I think, I think the issue that they've got is, um, first and foremost, it's goals scored. I mean, their, their leading scorer in the Premier League is John Joe Selvey with five. Um, you know, the attacking unit is not contributing significantly. And I think I'd really echo Seb's point here in terms of if there's a sudden cash injection into the club and there are clearly question marks around an area of, of the pitch. And let, let's not be um, too harsh on Newcastle. They actually have the makings of a decent squad there. Um, they, they have some outstanding players in certain positions. But what you don't want is somebody coming in and saying, right, there's £200 million in the transfer kitty. Go and buy some people without <laughs> knowing what the kind of chain of accountability there is. What is Newcastle's scouting system like? You know, For a long time, Newcastle were held up as uh, one of the more advanced um, kind of scouting systems on the basis of Graham Carr's work in France, where he uncovered a number of really, really strong players who came over, did well in, in the Premier League for Newcastle and then were sold on uh, for reasonable money. Now, that pipeline has dried up and while I would say, for example, the acquisition of Joe Linton is, is a very sound one, and I know a lot of Newcastle fans will disagree with this opinion, but Joe Linton is a very good player. He's just being used badly. Um, you know, you don't want to go and spend 50, 60 million pounds on a striker if it's not the right striker for the system. So... Are you saying they, they shouldn't to... sign Rubinho? <laughs> How long until they do? Is that is that, is that a fair comparison? 
Um, well, no, I mean, Rubinho is a, is a, a funny example because he was very up and down. Um, but I think, I think what Newcastle need to do first and foremost is, is start from scratch. They need to say, okay, what is the style of football that we want to play? If we want to play that style of football, who is the manager that we bring in to support that with a director of football overseeing that process? The director of football should then be responsible for looking at transfer targets that complement that overarching style and also have a list of managerial replacements in case that manager doesn't work out. But you want, you know, a takeover is always the opportunity to to begin this squad building process from scratch. And, you know, it's it's not like Newcastle have, like I say, a duff squad. You know, Sam Maxime, very, very exciting. Fabian Cher, one of the really underrated central defenders in the league. Florian Lejeune, likewise. Um, Lascelles, I'd put yeah, in that bracket it, as well. I, I would keep Lascelles. I think he's absolutely. He's I, I, I would definitely keep Lascelles. I think um, Dubravka is an outstanding goalkeeper. Um, Matt Ritchie is a very flexible player who can who can play in a variety of different positions. You know, they've got they've got some decent stuff to build on there. You know what's really interesting, Alex? If you because you were talking about sort of the way they attack, I, I, I've reported on Newcastle cover times this season, and it, the aesthetic is really weird. It's like. Um, well, with with Sam Maximan, it's as if every time he gets the ball, the idea is for him to score the greatest goal in the history of the game, because he Bruce Bruce's tactic seems to provide him with the opportunity to pick up the ball maybe just inside his own half or just beyond the halfway line, and then he's encouraged to take seven defenders on, and <laughs> hopefully he'll score a goal. And that seems to be that seems to be what amounts to a counter attack in Bruce. Bruce's game plan. So if you were to- yeah, I, I, that's absolutely right. That's that's why it's their weird, numbers for dribbles and take ons are so high. Yeah. but their end product is so poor. It's a safe um, counter attack, I mean, right? If you only send one player forwards. Yeah, but well, conversely, yeah, so I mean, it, just just I mean, just just sorry, I wandered off topic, but it's interesting because if you were to say, right, we've got Joe Linton, Sam Maximan, and Almiron, call that a notional front three and organize it whichever way you want to. Um, but if you were then to stack it with a stack it in front of a midfield who could actually control the ball. Um, you, I wouldn't call that an elite unit. I wouldn't say that they're about to you know, infiltrate the Champions League places, but that's a very useful and interesting attacking side. I'd want to watch that, for instance. It would be, it would be entertaining because those are, um, that's, a, that's a pretty flair-heavy um, group of players. Yeah, I, I mean, I, if I were Newcastle, the first thing I would do is, is look to get a striker. Um, I think we've seen with Joe Linton that he is most effective when he's paired with somebody else or potentially when he's operating out wide. So I think if you had Almiron in the 10 role, um, Sam Maximan and Joe Linton on either flank, and they could swap during the course of the game, to be fair, that what they all need is somebody to play off. Um, We're going to talk about Salomon Rondon, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean... <laughs> One of the greats. Someone potentially like that. Yeah, but it, it, but it, it's that sort of player. It's somebody Absolutely. who can create space for others, who can hold the ball up. Odia Nagalo. Um, if you've got yeah. a, a a midfield double pivot of of one of the long staffs plus John Joe Shelby, who I think if his head is in the game is still yeah. capable of big old real, you know. Well, I I mean he's a fabulous player. Like, has, I think he's so gifted. But you're you're absolutely right. He's such a Give him somebody else's He brain. blows incredibly hot and cold, doesn't yeah, he? But when yeah. he's when he's good, he's he's superb. Yes. And if you look at Newcastle's current striking options, you've got Yoshinori Muto, who's basically done nothing and has had injury problems. Uh, you've got Dwight Gale, who is an excellent player. championship level striker, but yeah. but has struggled in in the league above. And Andy Carroll. <laughs> um, Who's out of so, contract in the summer as well? So we were going to and and is persistently injured, and you know. So if you could if you could start with that, and, and normally I would, you know, I'm very hesitant to advocate spending big money on a striker because strikers are the, it's the most overvalued position. It's the one where it's hardest to find the right sort of quality. But if you were to look at that, um, maybe an upgrade at right back. If you can't sign Lazaro. I, I doubt it's a loan to buy option because you know Inter are the sort of club that will play through at the back and will want yeah a, a really high quality right wing back and Lazaro is that and will become that so you know I think I think there's a couple of areas to strengthen but 
if I were Newcastle, the first thing I would do is be looking to get people like Dubravka, Cher, Lejeune, Lassels on big long-term contracts um, and, and really kind of solidify the spine of that team and then make one or two careful acquisitions to, to complement that. And yeah, I think I think if they had the right manager with that squad, you know, they're not going to be challenging for a Champions League place anytime soon, but they can start to incrementally work their way up the table while playing more exciting football, which surely is what Newcastle fans want. Okay, well, listen, we don't know when football is coming back, so there's, there's probably not much point uh, speculating on, on the timeline for, for when these things occur. It's, it is an interesting time for a deal to go through, particularly when, when clubs are, are struggling so much. And one of the things I'll be curious to see is if this deal does go through before the end of the lockdown, for example, I wonder um, how the new owners will deal with the, the situation of um, non-playing non, uh, um, staff currently being furloughed at, at Newcastle, which is a decision which has been made and reversed by Tottenham and Liverpool and was considered by some other clubs and not made. So I wonder if that's something that we'll see reversed initially. But it strikes me that this conversation generally is just a very confused one <clears throat> for obvious reasons. Um, you know, the way that we work at TIFO is, uh, you know, with Alex, we look at the squad itself. We look at the team. We look at the tactics. We look at the sort of pragmatic decisions that, that can and can't be made to to change the outcomes on a football pitch without considering the wider context most of the time. With Seb and with some of our other writers, we try to examine that wider context and we try to keep, um, I guess, keep an eye on the moral issues too. So, it, it, you know... I guess what I'm saying is that for supporters of Newcastle, this is a very, very confusing time. And um, I'm going to ask you an impossible question to answer, Seb. Uh, if you are a Newcastle supporter and you've just had 13 years of Mike Ashley, um, which has sort of derided your not love for the club and, and for the for the badge and whatever, but your love for attending the club day to, on a day-to-day basis and, you know, the despair at, at watching the stale and stolid way in which that uh, partnership has worked out. On the one hand, you're feeling sort of jubilation that Mike Ashley is going to leave. And on the other, you are aware that uh, the new owners are, you know, I mean, responsible for some of the worst human rights uh, yep. uh, violations that we can see in the modern world. I mean, that, that is not an exaggeration. You know, it, it takes a cursory five-minute look on, on, online or you pick up, a, pick up a newspaper. You, you, you will see the sort of, the sort of uh, human rights violations and the crimes that are ongoing, um, uh, abdicated by uh, the, the um, abdicated, sorry, by the, by the, by the leadership um, in a Gulf state like Saudi Arabia. So how do supporters rectify those two things? How do you, how do you, how do you not do what we've just done, or can you, which is to talk about it a bit and then go on and talk about the actual football? Because ultimately that is what is going to happen. Does that, does that, I know that was a winding way of getting there. No, but, but that makes but sense, I, right? Yeah, but Joe, I, I think, I think that we need to take a long winding way to get there with these questions because they're really conflicting. Um, so last week I was writing an article um, for another website uh, about what Newcastle need to do from a footballing perspective, what their next step should be. Um, and I remember talking to the editor about it and, and she said, you know, we want to do that. And I said, well, how can you, how can you skip through to that um, without seeming like you're ignoring the obvious? Um, and I think a good rule, I, I, look, I, my big thing here is um, in the first instance, I don't believe fans should be held accountable for the actions of their owners. I don't believe that fans should be answerable in any way. Um, and nor do I believe, you know, unless you're in this situation yourself. So I'm a Tottenham fan. So say the situation's presented it, it, itself at White Hart Lane, um, a, a similar ethical dilemma. If I myself have not made the decision to say, right, that's it. I've had enough of this club. I'm turning my back. I don't really have the right to demand that of somebody else, of another fan. Because... A, I have no idea what it is, and B, um, to preach that is to kind of to misunderstand what fandom is. That being said, um, I think there is a line between not holding people accountable and then tolerating the kind of apologism that we've seen in the past. So, if fans are aware of it, then that is their business. What I don't really agree with is the kind of is these sort of these warrior cells that develop. Um, we've seen this with Manchester City in the past. It happens a little bit with Paris Saint-Germain too. Um, we know it's less because it tends to happen in French, obviously. Um, 
but you get these people that all of a sudden they, they become Wikipedia experts on uh, human rights abuses in the Middle East um, because it is their club and they sense that it is their obligation um, to be that person. They, they think it's a sort of a branch of fandom. Um, I don't believe it is. I, 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 I will not sort of demand that any Newcastle fan does that. And I'm not going to collar a Newcastle supporter in the street and say, right, well, you know, your, your club is, is now owned by these people here's my long list of grievances and ethical um, issues that I have with those people. Explain yourself. It's not the fan's position that. Um, and so what you're left with is this really difficult territory where it feels like even, even from um, a journalistic perspective, even if you want to write about um, a purely sporting issue at Newcastle, at the moment there's this weird implied obligation that your first paragraph has to be full of these asterisks that, that, that sort of, identify you as someone that knows what this is knows uh you know is fully versed in the kind of the practices of sports washing but has to talk about the football as if they're playing dumb anyway it's very very difficult and pretending otherwise is 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 um is disingenuous and well, I mean, I, I also, to what you say, you say there said though i mean i i, I agree with the majority of what you said i think one yeah. of the issues th that we have when situations like this arise um and this is very noticeable uh as it relates to, to manchester city and certainly other clubs uh, around europe as well is that um owners have realized that when they buy a, a western football club um they're also buying a kind of online army of, of people. Yeah. And that this Without absolutely question, does right. not relate to, 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 to all supporters. And I would never suggest that it does, but it is absolutely clear that there is a certain strain of supporters who support particular clubs owned by co conflicted and complicated ownership structures, um, who then take it upon themselves to defend those owners at every possible opportunity um, and often use the kind of whataboutery to do so. And that's something that has not gone un unnoticed by people who are seeking to use sports to, to, to sports wash whatever it is. Um, and I think, of course, you're absolutely right. Fans should not be blamed for the owners of their clubs. At the same time, fans should not actively defend them um, oh, against, against, no. all, against all other, other things, right? No, I completely agree with you. And that, that's where the line exists, Joe, because um, you're absolutely right. What some people have identified, particularly people who are investing in, in English football clubs, is that you do get these sort of battalions. It's a kind of a privilege of owning a football club. But then that in itself is really nothing new. If you look back at sort of various controversies, which don't even relate to, um, you know, takeovers. I mean, I I remember, for instance, uh, the Luis Suarez controversy, the Patrice Everett incident. Yeah. And... I think that's just as abhorrent, this practice of, of excusing things on account of um, what the guilty party did and what colour shirt they were wearing at the time. I don't, I completely disagree with that. So I can't, what I can base on at the moment is this small group of, of Newcastle supporters who I interact with online. And the consensus between them seems to be um, and I don't pretend this is, you know, any any meaningful sample, but the consensus among those seems to be these people are guilty of terrible things and I'm aware of that. And this is my football club and I have a vested interest in that. I have been there for longer um, than these owners and I will probably be there after they've gone. Now, their struggle is to try and keep those things in separate compartments. And having never been in that position myself, I don't know. I can't speak for how difficult it is. I think it's self-evident. I think it's a very trying process. And I think anyone, I, I, I don't know. I, 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 and I'm, I'm fine saying that I don't know because we are still coming to terms with these things and trying to properly understand them. And in my mind, just in my opinion, um, this is a, a kind of a, a new low watermark in the who owns football clubs debate. And so we're really entering uncharted territory. Um, so I don't think I don't think there's an answer. I don't think there's a a silver bullet response to your question. Um, but I think that's okay. I think that as long as we keep debating these things, and there's awareness of what is represented by the actions of people that own football clubs, and that the extent of that authority, I think that's the crucial detail, Joe. It's people getting to terms with people who grew up with football in the 70s, 80s, even the 90s, when it was still you know it was still fairly provincial. Um, these are no longer those entities anymore. These are multinational, hugely uh, powerful tools which are being manipulated by people. And I, I think this is 
this is just part of this that ongoing conversation and awareness yeah uh it fucking sucks doesn't it it's really difficult man like it's like writing about it i don't expect anyone to have any sympathy with it but it's a little bit of a minefield like you set out writing and you're thinking um i don't want to give anybody the opportunity to uh pretend that they think that i'm ignoring this or vice versa you don't want to be accused of being the person that says right well you've been supporting newcastle um you know, uh, since the 60s and 70s, and now it's owned by these people, therefore you are those people. You have to find the midpoint between those. Um, and it's it's difficult. Okay. Well, on that sort of sour and depressing note, we will end, um, as I said, with the caveat that we will return to this topic. Uh, we're going to bring James Montague back to discuss this in full and discuss the, uh, I mean, all of those aspects that we were just talking about there, the sale itself, some very interesting characters uh, who, who who enter into that, Amanda Staveley being being one of them, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, who is the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, who is at the centre of uh, a huge number of controversies and is also ultimately the owner of the PIF fund, which now owns Newcastle, well, which will own Newcastle after it goes through. So there's lots to discuss there um, and lots of interesting stories. We will come back and do that in full. Um, we're just going to wait for it to become official before we release that podcast um but thank you very much for listening today we will be back on thursday alex and i are discussing um what what are we discussing alex <laughs> you haven't actually told me oh, yet. what's going on, <laughs> so, on thursday I, I don't i don't know oh we're discussing parking the, the bus meeting. parking the bus oh, oh parking the bus we're discussing yeah, parking yeah, the sorry okay. i forgot about that because you know <laughs> okay. who cares about parking the bus when the world is at stake no, that's fine. It's a new era of organisation, this. It really I know, it really is. is. Um, <laughs> the best thing is that we organise earlier now, but subsequently I forget what what we've organised. Uh, anyway, we will be back on Thursday with that. Next week we will be back with another thing, which is as of yet to be organised. What a rambling way to end. Alex, thank you very much. My pleasure. Seb, much appreciated. Thank you, Joe. Great. And uh, au revoir to all. Au revoir to all.